people all around uh, the world, including each of you here this morning, are looking for hope, right? Aren't you looking for hope? You're looking for purpose. You're looking for uh, meaning, life, real life, something to satisfy you. Your neighbors are like this. Your coworkers are like this. Your kids are like this. Kids, your parents are like this. Doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are, we each one are looking for hope, looking for meaning, looking for contentment, looking for satisfaction. We tend to look for things that make us feel good, feel happy. I don't know what it is for you kids that are in this room, but for me, it's a lot, a lot of the times, it's something along the lines of sports, something like hockey or football. I don't know what it is for you adults, but I imagine it's something akin to that. Maybe it's leisure, vacation, movies, all sorts of things it can be. We, we look for something that feels like satisfaction. And we know what it's like to look for something that's, that makes us happy, only to really ultimately find ourselves being sad again and not content. So we're fine when the game is going on, as long as our team's winning. We're fine if the movie's going along, or the cartoon, or whatever it is that you're watching. Everything's good until it's over. And then, it's, then it just kind of stinks again sometimes. The Bible tells us a story. We, we know this story. I know you kids that have grown up in your homes, you have heard this story before. You've heard this story. It's very familiar to you. At least, at least each one of us think we know it well. It's the truest of stories. It's not like a fairy tale kind of story. It's not just like a Marvel comic kind of story. It is the story of all stories. It is the truest of stories. And it tells us that we were created to find hope and to find satisfaction, not in cartoons, not in movies, not in sports, not even in each other, or in our health, or in, our lo- in one place alone, and that is in God. The story also tells us, this true story sadly also tells us that rather than trusting God, Rather than finding hope and satisfaction in Him, each one of us rejects God. We reject God by looking for hope elsewhere, looking for satisfaction elsewhere. And if you've ever chased the end of a rainbow, because you think the rainbow lands someplace, you know, you look at the rainbow and you see it land and you're like, let's go check it out. And you go to check it out and what does it do? It keeps moving further and further away from you. That's what satisfaction in this world is like. This Bible is a story that tells us that there is a consequence. There's a punishment, uh, a, a correction. I know you kids have been punished, right? You've had your parents say... Uh, hey, you didn't do this right, and so I'm going to punish you. This is, this is what God's 
word tells us that when we reject God, there is ultimately, that, that's not okay. It's, it's not okay to trust, to look for hope somewhere else. We, we choose not to trust God. We choose not to believe Him. And that consequence isn't just sitting in the corner or not being able to watch something or whatever. It is, it is the Bible says it's death. And that's pretty, that's pretty heavy. It's a serious thing. The reason it's so serious is because God is the one who made you. And God is the one whom you are to live for and find satisfaction in. And so, you guys, when we look elsewhere, when we look to something else, adults, kids, when we look to something else, this is not just what everybody else does, although it is. It is, it is what's called sin, and it's rejection of God. And the consequence is being rightly judged by God for rejecting Him as the one by whom and for whom we live. So this is a story, this book, that we're very, very familiar with. You probably all have many of these books in your home, or your parents have them on their phone, or iPads, or tablets of whatever kind. We know this story very well. This story also tells us that even though God would be absolutely good and absolutely right to punish us, and to punish us to the very end, He... He sent His one and only Son to die for us instead. So that we would never die, but that we would have eternal life. Life that just goes on, going on, with the deepest of satisfactions you would ever experience. And that's the story of the Bible. And one of the things that we come to in, our, in the sermon this morning is that it is in the heart of each one in this room and each one on this planet, whether men and women, boys and girls, to charge God with wrong, with wrongdoing, and reject His only Son, to not believe Him, to not trust Him. And when you don't trust God for something, what it's what it's really doing is you're, you're not believing him. You're, don't you, you think, okay, God, you said you'd satisfy me. Don't, I don't believe it. So I'm going to do this instead. It's a common occurrence for all of us to not trust him. And many people throughout history have not trusted God, have rejected God. In the last section of Luke, chapter 22, we saw that there were the religious leaders that were ultimately rejecting him for one thing, because he, Jesus, called himself God. He was saying, I'm, I'm, I am the one who is going to sit at the right hand of the Father. I am the Messiah. I am God. And, and they reject him. They hate him. They, this rejection in our text, in this scripture today, is, is not just the religious leaders that reject him, but a man named Pilate, and then a man named Herod, and then, and then a bunch of people. Just a bunch of people. A bunch of people in the crowd in Jerusalem 
who, who cried out for Jesus, the perfect Son of God, to be killed. Kill him! And, and the noise of worldly rejection was loud in that day, and the noise of worldly rejection is alive today and loud today. And perhaps this rejection, this lack of belief and trust in him and opposition of Jesus is alive in you today as well. Perhaps it's not loud like the screaming crowd that is out in our text today, but it is a cry of rejection nonetheless as, as is, is almost just as loud in our hearts, even though our lips might not cry it out. It's loud in our hearts. It shows up in a reality that in very depth of our heart and in our minds, we, we don't believe God. In fact, what... What rests at the root of every single sin that we commit is rejection of God and worthy of punishment from a holy God. So what Luke would have us consider today as he prepares us for next week's text, which is arguably one of the most amazing texts in all of Scripture— what he does to prepare us for the narrative of the actual death and burial of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, where he will in fact die for the sins of all who hope in him as the sinless Savior. What we see is Luke telling a man named Theophilus and telling us today that amid the dark rejection of mankind, Jesus stands ready to save all who hope in him. So amid all the rejection, amid all, the, all that rejection, there stands Jesus ready to save in our text today. Ready to save. He, he's, he has not died yet in our text. He's standing there being rejected, and he is standing ready to save all who hope in him. And look, this is what I hope we will see afresh this morning through three observations of this text, and this is wonderful. That Jesus, the Son of God, though falsely charged, stands absolutely innocent. That's the first observation. Second is, though rejected by all, he stands resolute and undeterred and purposeful to become the one in the face of all the rejection to become our substitute. Those are observations two and three. So observation one is going to be that Jesus is our um, innocent Savior. Second point is going to be that our innocent Savior is rejected. And third one is that our innocent Savior rejected is, is our substitute. So let's look at the first observation, specifically this. Jesus stands ready to save as the innocent one. So he stands ready to save as the innocent one. The questioning of Jesus began in the middle of the night at the end of the last chapter, and they've, they've questioned Jesus before, but they have him now at their disposal. They can do whatever they want with him. And, and upon hearing Jesus's clear declaration that he was the Son of Man, that he was the Son of God, they finally know, they now, they have him, they've got him arrested, and they can do what they want. They, they respond to his response saying, you're blaspheming. So, so he says, I'm the son of God. They say, no, you're not. Matter of fact, you saying that is worthy of death. And so we, we want to kill you, and, but we can't do that. So we have to take you to someone who can give the approval to do that. So they pack him up and they carry him off and they take him to a man named Pilate. Pilate is a 
a governor of the area. He's, he's the big guy for the Roman, uh, the Roman government in that area. He is the one who can judge Jesus, if anybody could judge Jesus. Now they, so they come at the beginning of our text in verse 1, the whole company of them arose and brought, before, brought him before Pilate. So they come and they, they accuse Jesus of three things. The first thing is they accuse him of misleading the nation. Now, what nation? Israel. Um, Israelites who are, who are under Roman occupation. So he's misleading the nation. And they hate Jesus, remember, not because he's misleading the nation, but because he says he's the Son of God. But now they're before Pilate, and they know Pilate's not going to care if he's the Son of God or not if they think he's the son of God or not, or if he thinks he's the son of God. All Pilate cares about is if he's going to be misleading the nation. So that's what they accuse him of, some sort of sedition. Second, they accuse him of forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar. Now, if you have been with us along the way, or if you've read the story before, you know that Jesus has just said, just a short while ago, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and the Lord to what is the Lord's, right? So, so they're outright lying in that moment because they're the ones Jesus told that to. So they say in that moment, they, they are saying that, and they're accusing Jesus of forbidding them to give tribute to Jesus. It's, it's a political charge. It's something that Pilate is going to care about because people must give the tax to Rome. And so if Jesus is telling Israel telling the Jew, Jewish people to not give to Caesar, that's a big deal. Third thing they accuse him of is claiming to be king. And here's the one area that they speak a little bit of truth. Jesus had been so very careful, as we've seen, to tell all those who have been following him that he was not the kind of king that they had been looking for, specifically that his kingdom is not of the world. He did not come to deliver them from Roman oppression, but to free them from a far greater and devious and destructive oppression namely sin, death, and Satan. Huge things. Roman Empire, little in comparison to that. So nevertheless, they tell Pilate that Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah King and as such stands in opposition to Caesar being King and Lord. And all three of those accusations are entirely political, entirely manipulative, and entirely bogus. And Pilate sees it. If we look sideways over to John 18 for a moment, we read an interaction between Pilate and Jesus where Jesus tells Pilate this. Because Pilate's asking him questions. In our text, in Luke, he's not asking him a bunch of questions. He asks him one question. But we know from other gospels that he asks more than just the one. This is one of his responses in John chapter 18, verse 36. He says, look, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Now, what is Jesus saying there? My kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate says, okay, I don't care. As long as your kingdom isn't affecting my kingdom, you do whatever you want. So the only question that Pilate that Luke tells us, Pilate asks, has to do with whether or not Jesus is the king of the Jews, to which Jesus simply responds, so you say. 
And, and in that answer, he's not disagreeing, he's, he, but he's not going to play the game with the religious leaders, with their false accusations by confessing to something that's going to be entirely misinterpreted. And so at this point, Pilate's no longer concerned again. Jesus is certainly no threat to Caesar. On account, though, of the persistence of the religious leaders, Pilate like the weak leader he is in this moment, but he is nevertheless the leader, he sends him to a man named Herod, who is king over Galilee, where Jesus is from. And, and he happened in that time to be in Jerusalem. So the whole time with Herod, we read it, we're not going to talk too much about it right here, but the whole time with Herod is a complete joke. Um, not, not to Jesus, but it's a complete joke the way he handles himself. He's mocking him. He just wants to check out his magic tricks. Been interested about Jesus all along. But you see, you see the rejection in that. So Pilate says, uh, or, or Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, where we hear Pilate say to the religious leaders again, after he had been to Herod, he says, you brought me, the, and this is chapter 23, verses 14 and 15, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. This was one of their accusations, right? And after examining him before you, before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. And look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. In verse 22, we read of Pilate trying to argue with the people of Jerusalem who want Jesus crucified, trying to convince them uh, of his innocence as far as he's concerned. He says in verse 22, why? Why kill him? What, what evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. So I'll punish him and release him. So Luke shows us that not only is Jesus falsely charged, he is patently innocent, absolutely innocent. And this is important because when Jesus dies on the cross, a punishment for the worst of criminals, he hangs there not as a guilty man, but as absolutely innocent. Totally wrong. Totally unfair. He's not being punished because he deserves it. And kids, you know what that's like when your brother or sister have done something wrong, but you get blamed. That does not feel good. I know it doesn't feel good for me. So he's not being punished because he deserves it. He sees no need to defend his innocence on account of the reality that he's come to seek and to save the lost. That's why he's come. So he's not, he's not arguing. He knows the path. He knows the plan. He knows where he's going. He's committed to do what he was called to do. He's committed to do the will of the Father, as he said in the garden the other night. So even in the face of false accusation and ultimate disdain, he is going to go to the cross. Three, three times Pilate tells the people, the angry people before him, that Jesus is innocent. His innocence is entirely obvious. But not only was he innocent of the crimes that Pilate would have cared about, he was innocent of any sin. Peter would say in his first letter, Peter, who has run off in our text, he's denied Jesus. Peter's nowhere to be seen at this point. But one day, not too in, far in the future, he would say this to a group of people who are struggling in their faith and scared. He would say this. He committed no sin, speaking of Jesus. 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And, and while this is a wonderful, helpful example for us regarding how to respond when we're treated poorly, this is what Peter was getting at with the, with the, with the church that he's speaking to in, in the first letter. He's saying, hey, if you're treated poorly, if you're treated badly, if you've been falsely accused, Jesus... Jesus knows your sorrow. Even Jesus did this. Even the Son of God walked through this. He knows your sorrow. But listen, this is, this is not just an example. This, is, this reality of his innocence, of Jesus' innocence, is a vital aspect of the gospel. For if Jesus had been guilty of the slightest sin, the slightest manipulation, the slightest civil disobedience, he would have simply been hanging on the cross for his own sin. But Jesus was not going to be hanging on the cross for his own sin. He was going to be hanging on the cross for yours and for mine. And for, matter of fact, for some of the people that were, that were yelling, crucify him, away with him. He was going to be condemned to death as the innocent, sinless, unblemished Lamb of God to pay the penalty for the sins of all who would ever believe on and find their hope in him. If Jesus isn't innocent, entirely innocent, his death is meaningless because he would have just been dying for his own sin. But Jesus stands ready to save you as the innocent one. And listen, we've heard this before, haven't we? We, we, we know this. This is, this is, this is like, to, to many of us, this is Christianity 101. But it like, it lands on us with like, uh, yeah. This is the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, the infinite one, the eternal one who is standing there being rejected and mocked and falsely accused and he's just standing there not as a weak man who can't do anything because he could call, boom, like that wipe everybody out, but he does not. Why? Because he has to be the innocent savior. He has to be the innocent man who stands there ready to save just next week when he gets delivered to the punishers and then off to the cross where he's going to hang as the innocent son of God, the unblemished one for you. Man, I'll let that land on us afresh this morning. Does that land on you with like a dull thud? Oh, then if it does, then cry out for more of the Spirit. Cry out, open my eyes to see the beauty of this. This, this reality of His innocence in my place, standing condemned, that is overwhelming and that should work in us by the power of the Spirit and the authority of the Word of God to radically alter our lives. That's the first observation. Second observation, Jesus stands ready to save as the rejected one, as the rejected Lamb of God. John, John again, the, 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 um, the author of John's gospel, he begins his gospel by stating this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So this is Jesus. Jesus, This this is who he's talking about. And then just a few verses later, he says this in verses 9 through 11. The true light, that is Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In other words, they rejected him. They absolutely rejected him. And we've seen this kind of rejection throughout the whole Gospel of Luke. We've seen it in religious leaders uh, over and over and over again. And here we see it in Pilate, and we see it in Herod, and we see it in the people. It's just everybody that's in the text. Interestingly, the, the one thing that unified two men that hated each other was their common rejection of Jesus. And this remains true of all who reject Jesus. People could be Republican and Democrat and not believe Jesus, and the only thing they agree on is they hate Jesus. Well, not only do we see the rejection of Jesus in the religious leaders, in Pilate, and in Herod, and his soldiers, we see it in the crowd of people, right? That's the, that's the, that's the big piece I want to look at. Some, some in this crowd would have most certainly been some of those that were standing just a few days earlier welcoming Jesus as king into Jerusalem. But now their, their true hearts are revealed. They, they are those who reject King Jesus. And the silent rejection of him in their hearts through previous weeks and months now shouts loudly. So they say, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Hosanna in the highest, just a few days ago. Today, away with him and give us Barabbas. Now, a lot of otherwise very nice Jerusalem folk Moms and dads, sons and daughters. These were not like whomever you would consider the worst of mankind. These were people just like you and just like me. And just like your neighbors and just like your wonderful grandparents. They demanded, verse 23 says, with loud voices, they demanded that Jesus should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. And amid all the shouts of loud rejection, stands silently, yet resolutely, King Jesus, standing ready to save all who hope in him. Again, just as I said, even some who are yelling for his crucifixion, he's going to stand condemned for And later on, they're going to trust in him, and they're going to be saved. All this rejection isn't shocking, because it comes amid the backdrop of passages like Isaiah 53, where 600 years before Jesus was alive, 600 years before this moment, this is what Isaiah says about about the Messiah, about the Christ Jesus. He says, he was despised, and he was rejected by men. 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, but we have turned every one to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah prophesies with a prophetic precision here the rejection of the suffering servant by the very people who needed his forgiveness, that he was standing there ready to provide people like you and people like me, people like your moms and your dads, people like you, kids, your brothers and sisters, and your neighbors and your co-workers. Amid all the rejection on that day, Jesus stood ready and able and willing to save all who would open him, and he does so still today. Amid all the current rejection that is alive uh, in our culture, but, but forget about the culture for a moment, all the, all the loud rejection that are, is, that's in your very heart, or in the heart of your child, or in the heart of your spouse, or in the heart of your parent, or in the heart of your friend, or your coworker, or your neighbor, stands Jesus ready to save. If you would just place your hope in him. Is this not cause for rejoicing? That Jesus does not shy away from those who reject. He stands there ready to save if you just trust him. Third observation. Jesus stands ready to be your substitute. He stands ready to save as your substitute. So he's, he's innocent, he's rejected, and he's like, he's standing there, and it's like, why? Well, because he's going to save as your substitute. Jesus has not defended himself at all here. Everyone is rejecting him. All of this has been foretold. There's a purpose behind it all. And amid all the rejection, and even amid the three declarations of innocence, we see a hint of what is a very, very important reality in the purpose of Jesus as he stands resolute and ready to save all who hope in him. In verse 18, we got the mob and the chief priests and the religious leaders and the crowd saying, away with Jesus, release us to Barabbas. Or, yeah, release Barabbas to us. So we want Jesus dead, give us Barabbas. Right there, in a very common reality of this story, where a criminal is accepted and released, and Jesus is going to be punished, it's there that we see the very clear picture of the substitution of Jesus for another. It's not a full picture yet, but it is a picture. And we need to sit in this for a moment, and we're going to talk more about this next week because it's the glory of next week. But in this moment, it's a picture. And it feels so very wrong. So we got Jesus, who's been falsely accused of insurrection, being called to die on a cross by all the people, while Barabbas, who has already been justly accused of insurrection and sentenced for insurrection, 
that he, he's going to be set free. Totally undeserved. It feels wrong. We have a, we have a snapshot, though, in that moment of Jesus becoming a substitute for another. Innocent Jesus being sentenced for the very thing that guilty Barabbas had done. While Barabbas was set free and given a kind of new life. The substitution of the innocent for the guilty in the exchange of Jesus for Barabbas is, is, a, is a foretaste of the purposeful grace found in Jesus at the cross of Jesus as he is condemned in the place of sinful man. Now consider something that a guy named J.C. Ryle says. He says this, There is a deep meaning underneath these circumstances before us, and we must not fail to observe it. So listen, if you're looking for application today, here, here, here it is. We cannot fail to observe this. Our lives will not change if we don't see this. And so Spirit, please open our eyes to see in this moment right now The whole transaction is a lively emblem of that wondrous exchange that takes place between Christ and the sinner. When a sinner is justified in the sight of God, Christ has been made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ the innocent has been reckoned guilty before God, that we, the guilty, might be reckoned innocent and be set free from condemnation. If we are truly Christians, let us daily lean our souls on the comfortable thought that Christ has really, really, really been our substitute, and he really has been punished in our stead. It's not just some sort of theological category. It really happened. Let us freely confess that like Barabbas, we deserve death, we deserve judgment, and we deserve hell, but let us cling firmly to the glorious truth that a sinless Savior has suffered in our stead and that believing in Him, the guilty may go free. Do you feel that? The wonderful grace that is there the, the glories of Calvary, the, the depths of wonder. Amid all the rejection of Jesus that acts out of our hearts and the thoughts and actions of our sin-stained lives stands Jesus ready to be our substitute on the cross for all who hope in him. That we who deserve death are freed because he stood condemned in our place. May we never tire of that news and Let it go in one ear and out the other. For as we grow in the wonder of this grace in the mundane moments of our daily lives, we'll be changed at every, every turn. I've been set free because Jesus stood ready to be my substitute as the innocent Son of God who next week is going to die for me and he's going to be buried. And then wonder of wonders, you know what comes next. The further point that's just crazy amazing is that if this substitution, that reality isn't enough, it's, it's that this is the eternal purpose of God. Consider what Luke points to in the last verse. He says that he, that is Pilate, released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. He delivered him over to their will. 
Luke tells us that Pilate delivered Jesus over to the will of the chief priest, the will of the people. It does not sound like any eternal plan. It sounds like a mistake in the making. It sounds like, oh my goodness, what, what, the, what are you doing, Pilate? Don't give in to them. God, save yourself. Protect yourself. It seems that the enemies of God are in control, rejecting him and crucifying him, and, except this was entirely, entirely, entirely the will of God the purpose of Jesus. Consider uh, Luke's other book that he writes for a guy, this Theophilus guy, the book of Acts. Consider what is written in Acts chapter 2 when Peter again says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the will of the people. No. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was not substituted for Barabbas and delivered over to the people and ultimately the cross where he would, where he would die on account of the will of some people, on account of them being in charge somehow. He was substituted for Barabbas and he was delivered over to the people, ultimately to the cross, because God was in charge because God was in charge, because it was God's design for our salvation. It was by God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge that Jesus was delivered up for us to be a substitute for your sins. A substitute who lived a perfect life that we cannot live, absolutely innocent, and to die a death that we deserve to die so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus is not delivered to the people because he's guilty. Barabbas is guilty. Pilate's guilty. Herod is guilty. The people are guilty. The chief priests are guilty. You are guilty. I'm guilty. Everybody is guilty except for who? Jesus. But Jesus is the one who stands ready to die for us. <laughs> it's amazing. The spotless Lamb of God who came to die for all who would ever trust him. He wasn't just unlucky. He got kind of caught up in some sort of religious nonsense. He, he, he wasn't simply misunderstood. He wasn't a martyr, an unfortunate pawn in the incessant evils of pompous men. Peter tells us again in Acts 4, he says, for truly in this city, this is true, we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What, 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 was that predestined purposeful plan but to be a substitute for all those who would ever trust him. He was there to bear the punishment and the guilt that we deserve so that we who look to him, we who trust in him alone for salvation will be set free. No condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. On that day when Jesus stood before Pilate, before Herod, before the religious leaders and the people of Jerusalem, he was met with loud shouts of worldly rejection. And yet he stood there resolute and ready to obey the will of his Father, save all who hope in him. He was declared innocent. Most importantly, when he rises again, God the Father declares him absolutely innocent. Sacrifice is accepted 
But for now, what we see is that there's, there's no sin in this man. He has done nothing to deserve death. And, a sub, and he ends up being a substitute for a notorious sinner. Not just a... Barabbas is a notorious sinner. You and me, notorious sinners. Phil Riken says this, through Jesus we've received a benefit surpassing all expectation just as Barabbas did. Imagine what it must have been like for that prisoner when he heard the good news of his exchange. He was not going to die after all. He was going to go home free because Jesus would die instead. For Barabbas, this was pure grace. He was still in prison when he heard the happy news. There was nothing he could do to gain his own pardon or grant his own release. He had no way to escape the chains of his bondage. He was in jail. He was in prison. He had been sentenced. It was going to happen. All of a sudden, then, chains off. Gates open. His life was spared only because Jesus died in this place. The good news of Jesus Christ, the the good news literally tells us that very thing in a far more wonderful and expansive way. The gospel comes to us that those who are imprisoned, not simply in a prison of their own making or or a prison that is made by man, but an eternal prison that leads to spiritual death on account of our sin against the eternal and infinite holy God with no chance of parole, no chance of escape whatsoever. But while we were in prison, while we were in reality dead in our sins, while we were still enemies of God, God in his purposeful mercy and his grace sends Jesus. He sends Jesus to stand condemned in your place if you just trust him. Stop rejecting him and believe on him. You feel the wonder? How many times have we read this story? If you grew up in the church, you've read this story hundreds of times. Let it land with the weight that it's due and the wonder. Amid all the rejection of people, Jesus stands ready to save all who hope in him. Jesus, Jesus' heart, his purpose is to obey the will of the Father It is the Father's heart to save you as the one who rejects his Son. And Jesus will stand accused, condemned in your place to take on your punishment that should have been yours so that you would be set free from your bondage to sin, to death and to Satan, and to live unto him, finding the hope and satisfaction we are earnestly seeking for in cartoons. And then... Any specific sin that you struggle with and things that aren't sins, just things that are lesser. This is the message of the gospel. It's the hope of Christianity. You feel the wonder of the glory of Christ amid even the darkening moments of our text. There are familiar verses to us, but these are life-changing verses nonetheless. Let it rest on us. I think of all the things that we can look at today in this text specifically, started with the song, Behold Him. To get our eyes off of ourselves for a moment and what we need to be doing and to look up and to see, the Son of God died for me. 
Let it rest on your heart today that you would see amid all you're going through in your life, amid all the turmoil of your circumstances, that there is one thing to be certain of. The innocent Son of God, amid hostile rejection, stood with purposeful intent with you specifically in His sights. Not just a general group of people, with you specifically in his sights to save you from the just wrath of God against your hostility to him so that you and I could sing aloud with thankfulness and praise in our hearts, it is well with our souls. Though things are not well in this world, it is well with my soul because Jesus stands ready to save you as the innocent Son of God, that no matter how much rejection occurs, he's going to die in your place if you just trust him. Song says, there is no sinner beyond the infinite stretch of his mercy. How can we thank him enough for how he has loved us? Let that inform your week 